Thank you for joining me today on 14th and G as we continue our COVID policy series with a look at the impact of the virus crisis on America's healthcare sector. I'm pleased to be joined today by two of the sharpest healthcare policy experts in Washington. Dean Rosen founded the healthcare practice here at the firm, Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas, after serving in numerous positions on Capitol Hill, most prominently as chief health policy staffer to former majority leader, Bill Frist. And Lauren Aronson, also a partner, she served in a number of key positions in the Obama administration, including in the White House as policy director of the Office of Health Reform, where she was one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act. She also serves as executive director of the Campaign for Sustainable Drug Pricing. Dean and Lauren, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I think it's a good place to start by looking at where we were going into this crisis. What was the, Dean, I'll just ask you, what was the state of American health care uh, before the, the apocalypse descended? <laughs> well, the state of American health care was strong. <laughs> In reality, I, I think the, the, the COVID um, pandemic has exposed some of the gaps and some of the challenges that the system was facing. We knew there were, you know, a large number of uninsured, despite significant efforts to um, provide subsidies, expand Medicaid. We knew there were racial, ethnic, rural disparities in health. We knew that people were facing challenges, uh, as you know, from a lot of the debates we've had with clients. Uh, Congress was debating things like surprise medical billing, where patients were kind of falling through the cracks. And so what, what you know, COVID did was sort of expose a system that worked very well for people who had coverage, uh, but still had gaps, I think. Um, and I think the second thing it did uh, for me was it pushed aside, at least temporarily, um, some of the other more partisan debates we were having. For example, what was teeing up at the presidential level was a, a fight between whether we were going to have Medicare for all or whether we were going to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act or do something in the middle. Now, you know, clearly a lot of Republican and Democratic ideology has gone by the wayside as everyone's tried to respond to the current crisis by filling some of the gaps that I I just mentioned. And so what what do you think are the what, what are going to be the long term impacts on health policy and how, how has COVID reshaped that that debate uh, about coverage, uh, about how we support providers and everything from from labs to uh, to pharmacology? Well, that's a that's the, you know, right now, three trillion dollar question, <laughs> which is what Congress has spent over the last few weeks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, interested in Lauren's thoughts on this. It, my sense, I think it's a, it's a great question because what I think has been, again, exposed are some of these gaps. And I think the question is, once we get through this crisis phase, once we get our arms around this pandemic uh, and, I, and we will. And the American people are resilient. Uh, our, our healthcare sector has been enormously heroic on the front lines. I think the question is, you know, are we going to, in a in a bipartisan way, say we've got these disparities? We know um, African Americans are are dying at a higher rate, for example. We know people with multiple chronic conditions are more likely to be impacted in terms of their health than 
those who are younger and healthy. Are are we going to you know look at our healthcare challenges with a new set of eyes? I think we will in some cases for sure with that. I think that clearly this has exposed the fact that we do not have a lot of public health capacities. We've let those wither. We've, we've not invested enough in our provider system. We've not invested enough in um, stockpiling. We've not provided enough incentives for drug companies to uh, discover the next great treatment and cures and vaccines. And I think all those things there's agreement on. What I think I don't know, and this is where, you know, Lauren and I may have different views of the world is, you know, does this mean that all of a sudden we're going to, you know, put everyone in Medicare and have single payer or Medicare for all? Or does this mean that we're more or less likely to fight over the Affordable Care Act? So I think it's a little too early to tell. For me, my sense is that we'll snap back into some of the same ideological bunkers that we've been in. But I think some of the issues around disparities and around public health shortcomings, lab testing and other things we're going to have to address. On, on that point, I think there are a couple items I'd like to note. You know, one, I, I agree with Dean that I think that there have been, obviously, that this pandemic has exasperated some of the issues we have seen as relates to health insurance coverage over the last couple of years. I mean, even since the Affordable Care Act became law, we have seen great gains in coverage, but because of steps the current administration has taken to undermine the law, and then you have many states that have not expanded Medicaid, we still have a significant number of gaps in terms of coverage. What I find striking about the four packages now that Congress has passed to deal with the COVID crisis is that there still hasn't been any policy put forward by Republicans to actually deal with some of these coverage issues. It has been a priority for Democrats in the Congress for quite some time, going from day one of this conversation to provide things like COBRA subsidies, coverage, and filling in some of these gaps like COBRA, et cetera. But the problem right now we're seeing is that, you know, the bipartisan bills that have moved forward have not dealt with that issue. I think broadly, I think one other question I think that's interesting that Dean raised is whether or not we'll go back to having a conversation about rising health care costs. To Dean's point earlier, we've seen a lot of conversation prior to the COVID crisis about surprise billing and items like drug pricing. You know, I appreciate Dean's comments about the need for incentives for pharmaceutical companies. I would argue that pharmaceutical companies have had plenty of incentives for many, many, many years to invest in vaccines and invest in these kind of cures, and they have chosen not to. So as we're thinking about how do you incentivize you know, development of new vaccines and drugs, it's really critically important that we maintain and focus on some of the incentives that are already there that manufacturers have just chosen not to take advantage of. Well, you, Lauren, you referenced the, the, the COVID support packages. Uh, Congress has now passed and the president signed uh, four packages, three, uh, three sort of fulsome packages in response to the COVID crisis in this uh, this last one that uh, has just passed, which is really a plus up of, of these existing authorities that were established. Can you talk a little bit about what we've seen in the in the response from both Congress and the administration that's been direct support to uh, to health providers and the folks on the front lines of this crisis? Sure. Uh, I do think Congress and the administration deserve an immense amount of credit for putting a significant amount of dollars into things like the Public Health and Social Services Emergency Fund. They've put about $175 billion into a provider fund. 
I think there is some broad concern, however, about whether or not those dollars are getting out to hospitals and other frontline providers fast enough and whether or not they're being targeted well enough to some of the hot spots we are seeing around the country. So I think while everything that has been done so far is very well intentioned, I think we're hearing a lot of concern about some of the implementation from the administration and making sure that these dollars are really going out and to folks who really need them. Can I just can I just add one thing on that point? Because I, I think uh, not to push back on Lauren's partisanship here, but I think that uh, come on, it's no fun if you don't. <laughs> I think that to push back a little bit, this is uh, there's certainly things that this administration could have done better and, uh, you know, has led to you know, delays in testing and other things. And so I, I don't think anyone here gets a free pass. But in terms of the of the funding, I would defend, you know, what HHS and the administration has tried to do here, which is you think about it, the, the funding that we spent post 9-11 was a couple billion dollars in hospital preparedness, and it was delivered through the states. So, you know, you had a much smaller pot of money and a, a far fewer number of recipients. And so, you know, today, part of the challenge is you've got over 5,000 hospitals in America, every one of whom is hurting to an extent, or almost every one. You've got hundreds of thousands of physicians, and the administration's having to sort out, how do I get you know hundreds of billions of dollars out the door really, really quickly? So I, I'm not saying that the response has been perfect, but what I would say is there's almost no perfect way to get that amount of money out in a way that makes everybody happy. And by the way, Congress and the president are going to need to get together and appropriate even more money because the 175 billion that's been put out is uh, is is not going to be sufficient. I agree with that. One other point, Dean, I want to make is I do think one place where Congress and the administration have really been very forward thinking is in the in the realm of telehealth. All of the bills that have passed have included significant provisions to really advance telehealth. You know, we've had a conversation in Congress for for many many years about how do you incentivize telehealth services, and I think there's been some reticence about you know whether or not telehealth is appropriate in what settings. And, you know, up until this crisis, you could only get reimbursed and access telehealth in very limited circumstances. And I think what one of the shining moments right now in this conversation is that Congress and the administration have really gone to the mat to figure out how can you incentivize telehealth, really help people get services and access to physicians from their home. And so there have been an incredible amount of flexibilities provided both in the law and through administration flexibilities that I think will actually really further access to telehealth in a very, very positive manner. Hey, Pinkson, you just have to note that Lauren said something positive about the administration. Uh, duly noted, red letter day. <laughs> and Dean, you know, great point. And, and these responses have been in response to what is not only a crisis of capacity within the healthcare system, but a real economic crisis that is impacting the healthcare sector directly. It seems to me, you know, this this COVID uh, crisis is playing out on two levels. It's both the economic impact on providers; they can't have can't perform elective procedures, which is the bread and butter for a lot of hospitals and a lot of clinical providers. You're even seeing stroke and heart attack patients that are maybe having symptoms that aren't coming into emergency rooms. And then the logistics uh, of an overtaxed system, what we're seeing in New York and, and other urban centers in particular, 
of, of a system that, that is really overtaxed by, by COVID patients. So what are, what are we seeing from, from providers, from plans, from labs uh, in, in, in the direct impact of this crisis on both levels? You know, it's a real challenge because as, as your question points out and implies, you know, in, in a non-pandemic world, policymakers and payers have been struggling with and taxpayers, you know, growth in the cost of healthcare that in some cases is exceeding cost growth in other areas of the economy and putting a strain on consumers. So as a result of that, there've been a lot of policy efforts and efforts by employers and others to try to, you know, wring out excess capacity in the healthcare system over the last couple of years. And, and when you have a pandemic hit like this, the first thing you need is capacity. So that's, so that's been, you know, a, a challenge. And I think in part, it, it, it's, it's not necessarily anyone's fault, but maybe the fact that, that we sometimes as a country tend to be a little bit short-sighted until a crisis hits and, and underscore the need to say, well, maybe we should be investing more in our public health system. Maybe we should be putting in place some things that would allow medical and other healthcare volunteers to to get involved and cross state lines to to areas of hotspots and 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 maybe we should do some things to invest in the ability of providers to to not have excess capacity at all times but to surge their capacity but but I think you know what what Lauren and I both seen despite some of those challenges is people stepping up in really significant ways I mean you think about the fact that people can't get to doctor's offices timely and that you need to have, you know, you, you need to have not just routine care, but, but care for things that may not be emergencies, but certainly could be urgent. Telehealth has stepped in to fill that vacuum. You know, we, we've seen folks like Teladoc, which is, you know, the largest provider of telehealth services in the country, just be overwhelmed in terms of their capacity, but really helping to supplement and augment the ability of fact that people just can't get to their doctor's offices. We've also seen a lot of our physician friends you know, as, as you know, we do work with the American Medical Association. We've seen a lot of doctors be very creative in, in doing Skype calls and Zoom calls and, and, and trying to get to their patients where they live. You know, we've also seen providers struggle on the front lines, be they in New York City or in the Midwest or on the West Coast. And to your question, uh, there have been huge impacts on the capacity and just the the need of the workforce to step up. But there's also been huge economic impacts because, uh, as you've said, they've had to set aside elective surgeries. That's put a strain on their finances. Um, so that, that's been one challenge. We've also seen health insurers step up in a big way to try to fill these gaps. A number of them have voluntarily said that for testing and treatment related to COVID, they're going to wake waive um, co-payments and co-insurance. Uh, Humana did that along with Cigna and, and others. But, uh, but we continue to see that this pandemic where it hits everywhere and it has huge impacts. Just as we have so many unemployed and you've seen the impact more broadly on the economy, that's what's happening in the healthcare system. Because I would argue, Dean, that we're well built to deal with public health crises that pop up in one, two, three, a dozen, two dozen hotspots. What's a challenge is when this is almost like a nationwide thing and all of a sudden every state or almost every county uh, is operating in some kind of restricted 
fashion and there's a risk of infection that we don't yet have a, a vaccine for. So those are a little bit of some of the challenges, but frankly, a little bit of some of the hope in terms of how folks are, are responding to this under tough circumstances. Just to pick up where Dean left off, I think an, another point that's important to note is, you know, the capacity piece, whether or not this will lead to a conversation about investing in, you know, graduate med medical education, the National Health Service Corps. There are a variety of programs at the federal level that are meant really to help incentivize providers and providers in high need areas and try to get more people into medical school. You know, I wonder if this will bring a larger conversation about how do we figure out ways to invigorate our, our health workforce, because clearly we know there's a need. I think the other point that's interesting here, too, is whether or not, given the economic issues, will the crisis lead to a larger conversation about domestic manufacturing? You know, we think about kind of the issues we've seen with drug shortages. So many active ingredients are coming from China. We have, you know, shortages of medical supplies like ventilators. And so I wonder whether or not, you know, in the coming years, we'll see a resurgence of domestic manufacturing to help ensure that we're not in a situation that we were in this time with a lack of access to, you know, really important um, medical devices and prescription drugs. Well, that all leads naturally to, uh, as we look beyond the acute impact uh, of the crisis right now uh, and, and the day when, when things return somewhat to normal, uh, however that's going to be, what do, uh, what do hospitals, labs, doctors, uh, if you are a, a medical care provider in the United States of America, how do you prepare for post-COVID world? What, what should stakeholders be doing now? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think one, you know, there obviously needs to be a top to bottom conversation in every healthcare sector about how do we ensure that we are properly preparing for this kind of pandemic again, you know, based on some of the policy reports we've seen from the CDC and others, we could be seeing, you know, seeing a resurgence of COVID during flu season. And so I do think it's going to, every health system in America is going to have to have a conversation, both from an operational perspective about how do we ensure that we have adequate supplies, but then at a federal and state perspective, ensuring that we do have the stockpiles we need. And so that's not only, you know, devices, it's hospital beds, it's, it's provider capacity. And so as we're thinking about, you know, how do we ensure that we're better prepared? I think that there's no question that every healthcare entity in the country is going to have to put in place some sort of contingency plan to ensure that we are prepared for the next, um, the next crisis. No, I think that's, I think Lauren said it well. I think, I think planning is, is really critical. I, I think the other thing to add here that at least has become clear to me is that uh, the, the private healthcare system clearly has a role to play. Our government programs that provide a safety net for insurance coverage clearly have a role to play. But I also think that there's been a, a need uh, that's been forgotten that I think we're going to have to confront, which is a broader federal role in supporting our public health infrastructure and in augmenting the things that the private sector can do. I think that's a public responsibility, not only a private responsibility. It's going to require partnerships between, you know, hospitals and payers and, and public health entities that are, that are a little more robust that are in place. And I think because, as we've seen with this, you know, we're the United States of America, uh, not just individual states. 
and the ability of um, an individual city, state, local public health department to deal with this uh, kind of thing when it when it strikes again, it's rare, but these pandemics are uh, are are beyond really the capacity, financial or otherwise. And you know, and what we found out here is you can try to seal borders at states and and uh, and at and at the national border as well, but viruses don't respect borders very well. It only takes one or two infected folks traveling. And, uh, and, and so I would argue that this is a, a brought home, at least to me, and I hope to others, that this is a broader national responsibility that's going to require more long-term investment in public health and greater partnerships between the public sector and the private sector. You've both spoken really articulately on the resilience uh, of American healthcare and the American healthcare sector. It's going to be innovation in that sector that gets us out of this crisis. I'm curious, as you both work uh, closely with, uh, with with innovators like the Mayo Clinic and and others uh, in this space, what is what is one thing that you've seen uh, that gives you the most hope can, that can really impact uh, the course of how we deal with this? It's a great question. I, I think from my perspective, I've been incredibly impressed with how entities like the Mayo Clinic and Teladoc and Epic and others have quickly been able to marshal their resources, develop new lab testing, develop new analytic capabilities to have help track the COVID virus and assist public entities and hospitals through this crisis. So I think that's just incredibly, it's a, it's a really a moment of pride, I think, for a lot in the healthcare system of how, how folks are able to really put aside the day-to-day and start ch- taking on a new challenge. And clearly these entities and many others have the ability to do that. And we just need to figure out how we continue to marshal that innovation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, these are these are folks who are trained to to go in. And in many ways, what we found is, is some of the healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, um, those are on the front line of hospitals, are, you know, a little bit like the military. I mean, they sign up and, you know, in peacetime and wartime. And uh, and it's been, you know, really impressive, the ones who've gone to work and, and, and then have had to come home, in some cases, you know, self-quarantine from their families or take that individual risk, but they still, you know, trudging through, you know, the streets of Manhattan every day, for example, or getting in the car and driving to work you know, at the Mayo Clinic to innovate and invest in um, in creative ways to build lab capacity. The, the folks at New York Presbyterian going to work every day in one of the hardest hit cities in the country. So uh, I think, Dean, you said it well, the, the resilience um, has really kind of brought out the character of, of what we sort of know, but don't always see and appreciate all the time, which is that that these folks in the healthcare sector at all different levels are, are really heroes. Yeah. And on that point, there was, you know, a front page Washington Post story this morning about a company in West Virginia where they had their employees volunteered to do, you know, three weeks straight of living in the factory to help do 12 hour shifts and not leave to manufacture a lot of the materials that need to go into PPE. And so that was not something the company asked them to do. They volunteered. And, you know, for a small company in West Virginia, that, again, just speaks to the resilience. So it's not only the health systems and the, phys- and the physicians, it's also the frontline folks who are manufacturing vital uh, PPE that we need. Well, on that hopeful and positive note, I want to thank Dean Rosen and Lauren Aronson for joining me today on 14th and G. Thank, thank you for, you for having, having us. us.